John Wayne's teeth. John Wayne's teeth. Hello, I'm Sherman Alexi, and this is the Sherman Alexi Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Sherman. Hello, community. Hello, subscribers. Thank you so much for the support. I'm sorry this week's post was delayed. It was a rough weekend. This whole week has been rough. Last Saturday, we traveled to Brooklyn for the memorial for my poetry editor, one of my poetry editors, Bob Hershon, and we had his memorial on Saturday at the Brooklyn Public Library. He died a year ago of non-COVID reasons. Uh, and, uh, so the grief felt both new because we hadn't had the chance to gather as family and friends to remember him. And it felt like it'd been a year of hanging and holding onto it because we weren't able to express it together. It was very rough. So I've been struggling this week emotionally. I read two poems for Bob at the memorial, one that I'd written for his birthday for him directly 20 some years ago. And then another I wrote last year in the aftermath of his death. And on the plane ride home from New York back to Seattle, I wrote an elegy, a new elegy for him based on something I had remembered during the memorial. And so I'm posting this today for all of you to read so that you might catch a glimpse of who Bob Hershon was as a person, as a poet, as an editor. Uh, I love him and I'm going to miss him for the rest of my days. So here's the piece. It's called Bob's Winter Coat. In 1992, the second time I ever visited New York City, I showed up in March without a coat. I'd somehow forgotten to bring a winter coat <laughs> to New York City during winter. I grew up in eastern Washington, so I'd experienced real winters. My reservation is farther north than Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Fargo, North Dakota, so I know winter on a primordial level. And yet, I didn't take a coat to New York City in March. How did that happen? I think it's because I was just as flabbergasted to be traveling to New York City for the second time as I had been for the first trip. Maybe even more so. Yeah, I'd graduated from college and was living in Spokane, but I was still mostly an unassimilated, naive reservation Indian boy, unprepared for the mythical city of New York, New York. During that second trip, I stayed in Brooklyn with Bob Hershon and Donna Brooke, and they were incredulous that I'd forgotten to bring a coat. They were also greatly amused and told the story for years. <laughs> I'm embarrassed nostalgic and proud when I remember that innocent and coatless journey. Bob was one of my poetry editors at Hanging Loose Press. 
that March 1992, they had just published my first book of poems and stories, and it had received an ecstatic front page rave in the New York Times book review. It was a miraculous time. Too miraculous, apparently, for me to remember something as simple as a coat to keep me insulated from the near freezing temperatures. So I borrowed one of Bob's coats. He was not a small man, but I'm a big guy. So his coat didn't fit well. The sleeves were a few inches too short and my shoulders strained the seams. The coat was also rather battered. He'd meant to dispose of it at least a decade earlier. I don't know why I've kept that thing, he said. It's good that you have it, I said. Otherwise, I'd be an icicle. It wasn't even a winter coat. It was a trench coat with a liner, a torn liner. Bob offered to buy me a new coat. I didn't have the cash and I didn't have a credit card. But I declined because of pride. A day after I arrived in Brooklyn, Bob took me to the New York City Ballet. Yeah, that New York City Ballet, the one founded by George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. Bob and I took the subway to Lincoln Center to watch Swan Lake. It's something of a cliche that my first ballet was the only ballet I'd ever heard of. Indeed, the only ballet that most of us have ever heard of. It's like a scene from a movie about an underdog, minority kid venturing into the elite white world. And I, the poor brown boy poet, was wearing a trench coat at least a decade past its expiration date. But that didn't matter at all. Certainly not to Bob. He was wearing simple clothes, chinos, parka, and plaid shirt. And not to me. I'd spent my entire life in blue jeans and t-shirts. You might think that I was being harshly judged by all the New York ballet fans and their peacockian finery. But they were New York residents, too jaded and polite to pay attention to me. That's one of the most valuable lessons you can learn in New York City. Despite your own insecurities and self-consciousness, you begin to understand that nobody is paying attention to you at all. Bob and I sat near the top of the theater. And, no matter my lack of knowledge, I thought then, and still think now, that those rafter seats were superior because I could see the entire stage at once without ever turning my head. Sure, I was missing the close-up witnessing of the dancers' muscles, but that would have just revealed them as extraordinarily fit humans and not the ethereal beings that they were portraying. And then, the ballet began. The swans floated on stage, and were as beautiful as anything I'd ever seen. I cried a little. Oh my God, I whispered to Bob. He smiled and shushed me. And then two swans collided 
Yes, they crashed into each other. The crowd gasped. One swan kept her feet, but the other fell hard to the floor. They quickly recovered and returned to their dance. But there was still a slight murmur moving through the crowd. But it wasn't the sound of voices. It wasn't an audible noise at all. No, it was the weighted silence of people who were now existentially unsettled. In New York City, I once saw a homeless man panhandling with a pet rat on each shoulder, though I don't know how domesticated those rodents might have been. On a subway train, I once saw a naked man spraying the air with a can of Lysol. Strange sights, I know, but New Yorkers have often and regularly witnessed even more shocking and unprecedented events. But nobody, nobody know how had ever seen two dancers slam into each other while performing for the New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center. They'd hit each other like a football linebacker tackling a fullback. To this day, 30 years later, I still worry about those dancers. Were they fired? I wonder if their careers ended that night and they've been teaching ballet to below average adolescent dancers in Connecticut ever since. I dread the thought of a small dance studio where a bored father leans close to a bored mother and says, that teacher was a New York City ballerina for one night. But I wasn't thinking about the future or a cruel father's imagined punchline as I watched Swan Lake for the first time. I could only be confused by the collision that had just happened on stage. I turned to look at Bob. I hoped that he had answers, but he was too stunned. I saw the confusion on his face, but more than that, I saw what can only be described as wonderment. In Bob, I saw the boy that he used to be. He was born and raised in Brooklyn, and aside from the few years he spent in San Francisco during his 20s, he was a lifelong Brooklynite. He'd lived in the same brownstone for decades. In Bob, I saw the kid who played stickball in the streets. I saw the kid who'd often been terribly lonely and grew up in a difficult family with a wonderful sister. I saw the kid whose heart was broken when Los Angeles stole the Brooklyn Dodgers. I saw the kid who'd learned to ride a bicycle while dodging cars on a narrow pothole mangled street. I saw the man named Bob internally speaking to the boy named Robbie. Then he noticed me noticing him. He turned toward me. I've traveled to New York City at least 50 times over the last three decades, but most of those visits just blur into one another. They end up feeling like one business trip endlessly repeated. And the more predictable and hyper-organized trips make me long for the pre-mobile phone days when I was always lost and needed the help of New Yorkers who were always happy to give the assist. Sometimes in the big city, it's good to be a confused nomad in search of guidance. So yeah, my second journey to New York City remains special, even more special than my first journey. And it's special because of that swan wreck. It's special 
because I sat on the balcony wearing a borrowed and bruised coat as the crowd was still murmuring as Bob took my hand and became a father figure. As he became my poetry father. Sherman, he said with the kind of baffled wonderment. Yes, I again say wonderment that only a great poet can experience. He said my name like he himself had learned something new. He'd never seen two swans briefly share the same exact space and time. He was already writing his poem about it. A poem that he never actually wrote. And yeah, I need to tell you now that I've never attended any other ballet. Why do I need to after experiencing that first one? Sherman, Bob said again and took a deep breath. Then he looked back at the stage where an odd miracle had just occurred, where the perfect had momentarily become a majestic imperfection, where human arms had become swan wings and swan wings had become human arms again, where there was magic and mystery and mistake. Sherman, Bob said as he tried to explain the world to me. Sherman, he said. That never happens. This has been the Sherman Alexi podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey, hey, oh, hey, hey, hey.